This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Network. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Network does not take responsibility for the statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Technology increasingly informs almost every aspect of our daily lives. It can be an equalizer, from voice-activated devices assisting people with mobility limitations or visual impairments to connected classrooms and data-enhanced health decisions. Technology is helping improve lives. For some time, our digital privacy has varied widely. Hinging on the technologies and services we use, the companies that provide those services, and our capacity to navigate confusing notices and settings. Now, more than ever, we must rethink the old paradigms governing our data-driven world and return power to the individual. The Center for Democracy and Technology is leading the way. What is the mission of the Center for Democracy and Technology? How is it advancing federal privacy law to protect digital rights? And what is CDT doing in the area of cybersecurity? We'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Nula O'Connor, President and CEO of the Center for Democracy and Technology. Nula, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. So delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. So could you give us a brief overview of the history and mission of the Center for Democracy and Technology? I'm delighted to do that. It's what I do all day long. The Center for Democracy and Technology is a 25-year-old think-and-do tank, is what I call it. Um, We really are an advocacy organization, a nonprofit, an NGO in global terms. Um, But we think really hard about the issues, hopefully in a nonpartisan, quite centrist, a little bit left of center, perhaps. I'm the first (laughs) former or current Republican to work there. But um, very centrist, bringing into uh, the dialogue company viewpoints, advocacy viewpoints, academic viewpoints on the rights of the individual in the digital age. And then what we do with all that thinking is advocate to companies, to governments, to members of the administration about what we think the right policy positions and product kind of development mores should be. So it's it's a very, I think, hopefully applied, practical sense of advocacy. How are you organized? So I always say we have two sides of the house, and it's not the two sides that are physically that folks in the, our office think about. It's the lawyers and the policy people, people who think about the architecture of law, and then the computer scientists, the engineers, the technologists who think about the architecture of the internet and the products from a coding and software and hardware standpoint. What's missing in this dialogue, I think, and not just in CDT, but in the global dialogue around technology in our daily lives, are what I call the connective tissue the social scientists, the anthropologists, the psychologists, the social scientists, the behaviorists, um, people to think about 
the impact that technology is having on human behavior. We are obviously thinking about the impact technology is having on an organizational structure such as democracy, how people organize themselves in what I would say is the best political system we've come up with so far. Not perfect by any chance, but better than a lot of other options uh, that we're apparently considering around the world right now. Um, But we need people to think about what it means to be human in an increasingly digital world. I have kids. I have kids and stepkids ranging in age from this year 10 to 20. So we have all of the things at home um, and all of the various uses of technology in their classrooms, in their personal lives, and how human beings and how society is adapting and adopting new technology. So these are some of the things. We are obviously very pinpointed on on democracy and political systems, but I think we need more thinking than we are doing as a society about how these devices are changing us. Interesting point. But what about you and your leadership role at CDT? And and you do refer to it as such, right? Right, CDT. Yeah. What are your duties and responsibilities as the president and CEO? Well, a little-known fact about presidents of nonprofits is we spend a lot of our time fundraising. Oh, yeah. So let me not let, take a, miss an opportunity to say come to cdt.org um, to check out our email newsletters, check out our, our various products, and, and think about uh, supporting us because we are funded in part by foundations, by corporate film, philanthropy, by individual donors. Um, I'm proud to say that it's a highly diversified portfolio and no one major donor can, could drive our agenda or sink us if they went away. However, it's a, it's a full-time job. Um, but even more more seriously, I help guide really the brand, the structure, the, the vision of where CDT goes in the future. I am privileged to stand on the shoulders of giants. Obviously, um, the organization was founded in 1994 by really a cast of five co-founders. Um, Jerry Berman, the most senior, um, helped by Deirdre Mulligan, who has been on our board for a long time and is now a professor at Berkeley. Danny Weitzner, uh, also a brilliant um, civil servant or public servant in the Obama administration, now at MIT and, and in the private sector. Um, uh, Jan Lori Goldman, also a professor in New York. And Jonas Seiger, who's still a practitioner here in Washington, D.C. Um, and then the second CEO, Leslie Harris, also now a scholar and, and, and a, a great thought leader in this space. And each each of those iterations, under Jerry, under Leslie and I, CDT has grown and changed. It was really a hearty band of, of advocates in a very nascent area in 1994, yes. right? There was there really was no commercial internet as we know it now. Um, Leslie took it and, and moved into Europe. We now have a legal entity, CDTEU which is recognized just in the last year by the crown of Belgium, and we have a certificate to prove it, and it was hard to get, let me tell you. And then we've grown, I think, in what I've always said is these three eras of CDT have paralleled CDT 1.0, the Internet 1.0 at your desktop, something you searched and kind of passively you know, adopted. Leslie was there in CDT 2.0 and the internet of your cell phone and and working you know mobile devices and that sort of thing. I think we're now really exploring internet 3.0, which is the internet of everything and everywhere. What I've said, it's not just the internet of things. By the way, it's not the internet of things. It's still the internet of people, as far as I'm concerned. Right? We have to put people first and our needs first, the humans, not the devices. But the, the internet at its best will serve as a platform, hopefully again for democracy, for free expression, for all of our core values. Values, but it will be embedded in everything, and it will be opaque. And that is a challenge for human interaction and for transparency if the internet, you know, the, the, the devices and the, the connectivity are in the walls of your home, yeah. the dashboard of your car, the, the screens of your students, your child's school. Um, 
interactive, you know, devices on the streets, cameras, obviously, and, and you know, and, and facial recognition in the public square. As the technology embeds itself into our daily lives, we need to ask the question, why and how and whether this is for the greater good? And that's what CDT is here to ask. So, you know, with that, I mean, you did a wonderful job of illustrating the, the, the technology trends and the leadership uh, the, of CDT. But in your role, with the speed of what, you're, what we're dealing with, and as you eloquently put it, the Internet of people, if you will, how, what kind of challenges are you facing and how have you sought to address those maybe management leadership challenges? What are they? I think it's, the management leadership challenges we face in the nonprofit sector and the advocacy sector are not dissimilar from those I hear my friends facing in the private sector and in government. Some of these are generational. Some of these are a relationship of work and life balance. Um, I've actually said in my career, I've been lucky enough to serve in um, appointed positions in the government and private law firms and private in big, little and medium-sized companies. Um, and at the end of the day, people are people. And people deserve and demand respect and dignity and and some autonomy. Um, I've also said, interestingly, that I think the meme about the mommy track or women being distracted, nonsense. I'm a better manager for being a mom because I can hear the noise from the signal. I can hear the whining (laughs) from the actual cry. I can also prioritize and time manage with the best of them. Um, But there's also some great lessons I've learned in parenting that I've applied in management and vice versa, which are... A good manager sets clear expectations and and some boundaries, but also doesn't micromanage the path to success, says this is kind of what success looks like. This is the end product I want to see and the quality I want to see. Now, you figure out how to get there, right? Because there may be a creative way for you, or you may discover something on that road or that path that I didn't think of. It's kind of the story, the old story about making the bed. You teach your child to make a bed. You don't run in after them and remake it because that's diminishing to their dignity. You, you You coach them along that path. And you hope that eventually they will make the bed as best they can in the way um, they, that, that suits their needs and reflects their spirit. But as long as it gets done, you know, you should be happy with, with that growth product. It's a very simplistic example. Um, so I think the management challenges I face, and I hear them over and over again from friends of the same cohort, I think there is a different relationship to people's work identity. And I would say in a, in a positive way, in a healthy and good way. I see this particularly in, in my friends who have stayed in big law and big law firms. I was just with a couple yesterday. They were talking about these kids, they don't want to work all weekend and they don't want to take assignments at 4.45 on a Friday afternoon. And, and I'm thinking, you know, in my experience in big law, people created drama where there wasn't any. People created crises to make themselves feel important. And I we, we are I wouldn't say we're laid back. We are very intense, I think, especially for a nonprofit sector at CDT. But I don't care where you get your work done as long as your work is getting done. If you want to do it at home in your pajamas, you know, frankly, as long as the work is getting done. No, I think there's important time bonding and, and being face to face. And I can go off on that tangent for a minute as well. But but I, at the end of the day, there are many different ways to be successful and to create quality Leaders, thought leadership, which is what we do, and, and quality um, analysis. And sometimes people need quiet to do that, and sometimes people need to be around other people. And I hope we've created both physical spaces. I'm incredibly obsessed with physical spaces and, and architecture as driving the kind of collaboration you want and also being inspirational and, and welcoming and, and warm um, and equitable for people. 
but also allowing that not everybody needs the same thing out of their work day and not everything and not every day needs to be the same for that person um, but I do see a, it maybe is a generational shift that people even kind of folks with high profile degrees or backgrounds or whatever don't necessarily think that working 85 hours a week is a good thing. And I think that's terrific, honestly, as a parent and as a busy kind of person trying to balance home and life. I've said everybody has their thing. For me, it's my children. For you, it might be a sport or might be an aging parent. It might be a hobby. Everyone has their thing that they want to or need to devote time to. Your work should not be 100% of your waking hours. It's not healthy, and it doesn't lead to well-rounded leadership and scholarship either. Can't imagine it leads to great results, right. you know. So what has surprised you during your leadership at uh, CDT? Um, I think what has surprised me over and over again, not only at CDT, is how hard change is for people. And across ages and genders and races and all differences, change is hard, and I'm kind of surprised. I, the, the the very stark example I've had in the private sector, not at CDT, was I went through a, a time at a company and the, the highs and lows of the Internet where we had hired a whole bunch of people and then we had to let a whole bunch of people go. And at the end of the day, that is a, that is a test of people's dignity, of how you deliver that information and how you receive that information. And also what I learned is it does not matter if you are 25 or 55. If you come to work in the morning and you are told your services are no longer needed, no matter how gently that message is delivered, it is a horrible thing. And both the people, especially onus is on the person delivering that news to deal with that compassionately. Um, but but individuals value respect, and respect can be accorded in so many different ways. Not money is important. Listen, we all have to pay our rent and you know feed our children or whatever. Um, but respect also means coming to work and feeling valued and feeling like your work is valued no matter what your role is in an organization and that you're you're getting a fair deal, whether it's compensation or title or hours or whatever. Um, and there are lots of ways to be creative. But at the end of the day, people need to feel that their work and their, their self is respected by the institution. And that's the same no matter what sector you're in. You kind of hinted at this earlier, mm-hmm. but I would like to get your definition of an effective leader and perhaps who has influenced your leadership. Oh, what a wonderful question. It's such a joy to think about. I have been so, so, so lucky to see mostly really good bosses. I mean, someone just gave me advice earlier in my career, which was it almost matters more who you work for than than what company or institution you're working for and or, you know, what your title is or anything like that. Um, And I have been I have been luckier than I I should have been or deserve to be. I I hope, and I, I know it all sounds really funny when you're t- you know kind of bragging about yourself, but I, I I think some level of humility and some ability to say I really don't know, I am not the expert on, I know what I've experienced in my own career, and I I my my gut instinct is telling me we need to go in this direction, but also a willingness to learn and to, to say I'm wrong yeah. and, and to be again somewhat humble and human and decisive. Here's what someone said to me when I took this job at CDT, oh they're so lucky because. At least you Republicans are decisive, <laughs> which I thought was such a gross generalization. But I am willing to take in all of the viewpoints and at the end of the day make a decision. Um, Amazon, where I was for a few years, a great, fascinating experience and great leadership, um, has one value. I hope I'm not dis- divulging. I think these are public now, which was a bias for action. And I really love that one because – and it's not to say willy-nilly because – Busy is not act, busy is not decisive, and busy is not action. You can 
look really busy but not actually be going anywhere. But saying, where is the ball going? I love the Wayne Gretzky. You know, it's not where the, the, the puck is. It's where it's going. Um, saying, where, what are we building towards? What's our end state goal? What's our future state, desired state? Our future st- desired state is a democracy that works for everyone, all people, regardless of race, religion, color, nationality, you know, whatever, gender. And um, and that's our desired end state goal. So every day what we do should work a little bit towards that goal. And when you're kind of putting in context, that helps drive you. I think the, 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 the leadership I've worked for has always been incredibly respectful of difference, has always been decisive, but you know, not without listening very carefully and, and humbly to all viewpoints before making a decision. And then there's always been some joy. So I'm thinking of, again, Kevin Ryan and Kevin O'Connor, the, the senior leadership at DoubleClick, who really got everybody in a room and people would yell at each other and really have hard discussions. But at the end of the day, we walked out and there was a clear decision and there was a clear mandate. Now, did people try to second guess it? Sure. But, but was it really clear that, that we were going in X direction? Yes. Um, Tom Ridge, who once said to me when I was at Homeland Security, it is okay to laugh at work. And, you know, we were dealing with this is the imminent time right after 9-11. And it's hard. It's hard. I was trying to explain to my kids the other day what that was like. You know, they weren't even born yet. And there was a lot of fear and there was a lot of grief and there was a lot of um, intensity of trying to build this new agency and that sort of thing. And he said, you know, and we were laughing at some kind of, you know, very dark kind of, (laughs) you know, subject matter. And he said, it is okay. It is okay to laugh. There are going to be plenty of days when we are all going to cry. So, and if you can't be with people who you love and respect, and these are the people you want to be in the foxhole with. And let me tell you, our whole senior team would still follow that man literally into battle. Like, we just adore him because he was, that's the, I guess the last thing is, I have been lucky to fork for people who I believe to have great personal and professional integrity. Like, and that, that I hope is very, very clear to my team as well. And I've said, even to like our senior controller accountant, I was like, if if I want if I'm going to get escorted out of this organization, it's going to be because of a policy decision that people disagree with, not because of some accounting error, you know, whatever. <laughs> so, um, I think great, great personal integrity about how people do their their go about the business of their lives. What are the strategic priorities for the Center for Democracy and Technology? I'll ask its president and CEO, Nula O'Connor, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. What are complex problems? How can we tackle complexity? How does engineering serendipity help address complexity? What can we do to translate opportunity into action? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with David Benjamin, co-author of Cracking Complexity, the breakthrough formula for solving just about anything fast. That's next week on the Business of Government Hour. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Lula O'Connor, President and CEO of the Center for Democracy and Technology. 
So, Lula, could you tell us more about your strategic vision for CDT? What are your key strategic priorities? Thank you so much for that question. We've just finished our five-year strategic plan. Um, And there are, of course, organizational ones and then also kind of cultural or or substantive policy ones. I'll start with, I guess, the most important policy ones. I want to see comprehensive federal privacy legislation in the United States in my lifetime, which is not, I think, a very deep boundary since I'm only just turned 50. Um, And actually, that sounded like an outrageous plan about a year ago when I, or two years ago when I first started talking about this. I had even members of my own board saying, you shouldn't say that out loud. That sounds incredibly naive. And now, as I said at my annual dinner this year, look where we are. I mean, in the last year, we've had a dozen federal bills introduced. We've had state bills introduced in, I'm sure, more than half the states at this point. I think there is a growing unease. I I can go deep on that. So let me go to the other ones first, and then we can talk about privacy all day long. And I think the real opportunity in this country in the next handful of years to get something meaningful on the books that protects individual privacy and digital dignity across sectors, across you know, on uncharted spaces. Um, we are we continue to be concerned about government surveillance. And I think government surveillance in this country and other countries is taking different forms. And let me say that in two ways. It's taking different technological forms. So we need to be mindful not only of bulk data collection and telecoms, which we all know about from the Snowden revelations, but and also um, facial recognition technologies in the public square and in other spaces. Uh, predictive policing, obviously, and and law enforcement and and other uses of not quite fully baked technologies, right? And so the potential for not only incorrect identification based on the limitations of the existing technology, and also baking in the biases of the people using the technology, right? And that's that's just a truism across lots and lots of different technologies. Um, I think I'm, I'm hitting on our three biggest teams, and we have really six or seven major policy teams at CDT. But the third kind of big policy team at CDT has always been freedom of expression. And I think privacy is almost done. I mean, kind of, candidly, that sounds very flippant of me, sure. but I've been working on privacy for a quarter century now, and I think it's a known known, as our friend Dick Cheney would say, right? <laughs> it is something we can un- grasp the, the kind of the scope and scale of. We may have different opinions of how it's going to shake out, but I think people know there's a problem, and they know every, that consumers and citizens in this country and elsewhere want us to do something about it in Washington and Brussels and the state houses, mm-hmm. et cetera. Free expression has as many different answers as speakers in this country and, and everywhere else. And I do think there is a very different climate around the First Amendment in our own country than there was even five or ten years ago. I think thinking about public good and, and you know, the old adage, you can't scream fire in a crowded theater because it's a public safety risk. What are other risks to individual dignity or community or um, safety or other? This is these are the questions I think folks on campuses are grappling with in university speech, and I do I, I am I think still a fairly hardliner on the First Amendment because I do think speech is one of the first things we we take away when we are trying to create a totalitarian space for a single you know authoritarian government etc. Um, and also I do recognize that. You know, holding the First Amendment as a sword over everybody else's speech means that more powerful speakers get to speak in certain contexts and platforms and the like. So I do think we need to think about the spaces we're creating and the values we are embedding in algorithms that 
promote certain kinds of speech over other or value speed or bombacity over, you know, other other values. Um, but I do think I think we have to have a hard conversation about conversation and in the Internet and, frankly, in the country um, and and how we talk to each other and how we respect each other and respect difference. And I mean difference of opinion as well as difference of view of kind of person and viewpoint and, and qualities. Um, and those conversations also look incredibly different in Europe and oh, yes. in the rest of the world. Yes. So um, I think everything we do here, we think about what, what, what that's going to look like in Europe and everything that's happening in Europe. We think what's, that gonna, what's the blowback going to be for our policy and for our companies and for our et cetera. Um, so, so speech, surveillance, privacy, and kind of staying true to the vision of an open and interconnected internet as both an enabler of equality worldwide and also as an enabler of community and harmony and peace worldwide, um, we are, you know, uh, there's an existential crisis, frankly, around the splinter net and around the, the, the bifurcation or the, you know, the, the fragmentation of government-owned and operated infrastructures. And that concerns me greatly. And we are, we are so busy fighting amongst ourselves, we're not really thinking about democracy versus autocracy, yeah. which is really where it is. I was going to ask you a couple more general questions, but let's, let's focus on the privacy um, aspect of your mission and your strategy. How has the privacy landscape changed? And how are you at the Center for Democracy and Technology addressing that change? And I believe you have some uh, a piece of legislation that you've developed that, that uh, so I was wondering about maybe tell us a little bit about the landscape and, and how you're addressing it. Thank you so much. I think the landscape has changed dramatically. So let's start with that and why. I think three major factors are kind of coming to bear on this swirl, this whirlwind of, of activity around state and federal privacy initiatives. Um, the California law, probably the, of the three, the, I'd say the the important one for company and compliance and that sort of thing, but also for the dialogue around do we have a federal kind of landscape or do we do this state by state as we did with state data breach, et cetera. Um, I'm not saying it's a perfect law, but I did anticipate and it did come to fruition that it is a major driver of enthusiasm or at least consideration of a federal law from play, market players who were not heretofore serious about it. Um, the GDPR. Europe, you know, put a big stamp of approval on having a very significant law with very significant penalties um, for companies doing business. And I think whether you really believe it was motivated by a true sense of respect for human dignity or whether it was, you know, motivated by other more economic factors, I I can't speak to that. I didn't I didn't write the law and I wasn't there in the room. So I'm not going to second guess. What I, I do know is there frankly are fundamental values of of human dignity that are that do cross the Atlantic. They take very different shape and they take different, very different form in our legal system, but there are things that we all can agree on. Um, and so that's the second factor. And the third one really, for me, the tipping point was Cambridge Analytica. So we started our most recent round of talks with companies, with academics, with advocates on a privacy bill legislation framework in late 2017, and my team said to me, why are you doing this now? And I said, because the private team, privacy team is not busy enough, and frankly, they need something to know, because no, it's <laughs> quiet, and that gives us a little runway and a little bit of, of quiet time to, to 
do the deep thinking. And they said, this is the, the readiness is all, right? This is about preparing for when the next thing comes, whether it's a change of administration, whether it's the next congressional set of elections, whether it's some event is going to happen that's going to reshape the, the, the minds and the framework and the public dialogue. We will be ready. CDT will be standing there like the dorks that we are with our paper in hand saying, here's an idea. And that is exactly what happened. And in fact, things happened a little faster than I anticipated because I was predicting we would be having this conversation, you know, later in 2018, maybe in 2019. And then Cambridge Analytica comes along and I'm getting phone calls, wild phone calls from you know reporters all around the world saying, why isn't there a law in the United States? How did this happen? This is, you know, this is an outrage. Um, for me, it it crystallized as Snowden crystallized the, the transfer of data from the private sector to the coffers of the U.S. government in a way that only really the most sophisticated kind of uh, folks who've been looking at AT&T and other, you know, other telecom providers understood the possibility of data collection. Um, so... Cambridge Analytica crystallized the issue of the transfer of really trivial data, and I'll, I'll tell you a joke about that in a minute. But in, inconsequential data, I would call it, kind of you know, entertainment data. What's your favorite color, or what's your dog breed at home, or what you know, what's the color of your house? Um, into a psychomorphic profile in another country, right? So it's crossing borders, it's crossing companies, it's crossing utility, and being fed into and analyzed in a way, and then fed back into profiling systems that had potentially, you know, and again, I, I can't speak to all the facts since I don't know them, but potentially consequential impact on your understanding of the world, what you see online, the news you read, what you're being, you know, presented in various different contexts or, or, or platforms on the internet. And I think people went, huh, that is not what I thought I signed up for when I took that stupid quiz. The morning that story broke was St. Patrick's Day. Funny, we're on an Irish theme today. And I was giving a big party at my house. So I'm deeply resentful that I spent most of the on the front lawn giving, you know, interviews to various news sources. Um, but I was that morning online taking a, what is your lucky leprechaun name quiz? Because, you know, I'm an idiot is really the answer. I'm like the shoemaker whose children have no shoes, right? I tell everybody not to do these things and then I do them myself. But the reality is, why not? We should be allowed to have – everyone should have a little fun, you know, on the internet and elsewhere. There, There is a very good utility to humor and entertainment. Um, and at no point do I think that data is going anywhere but, you know, maybe to, to some advertiser to sell me a pair of shoes or so, you know. Um, but it – the ratcheting up of the consequences of trivial data. So this is no longer healthcare data or your social security number or your credit card number. This is silliness being used to define and narrow your worldview. Remember the book, The Closing of the American Mind, right? Sure. This is closing the aperture of what you see online. So it's personalization in the extreme. And I would say personalization is great if it's I'm going to find that red blouse I'm looking for for that or that red sweater or whatever. It is not so great when we're talking about an educated electorate and the democracy. So we need to think about, we all need to think about, and that really kind of pivots into the larger question of what is our duty of care to democracy as individuals, as institutions? I am not saying it's anyone's fault that we're in the, the conversation we're in right now about the failing infrastructure of, of democracy anywhere in the world. But we all do have to row in the same boat if we want to fix it. And democracy is in peril, if not in the United States, then at least around the world in other countries. And we need to think about the impact of what we create, whether it's software, hardware, you know, public spaces, private spaces. 
voices are having on those institutions of government and those structures of organizing humans. Um, and I'd say we've maybe not done such a great job in the tech sector as the industrial. This is not my original thought, although it is it is a, a thought I have had. Um, as at GE, we had to work on cleaning up the Hudson River many, many decades after it was originally polluted by a predecessor of the company. Um, so we need to think about what kind of data pollution or what kind of data responsibility we have in the tech sector and what does corporate social responsibility, corporate civic duty, whatever words you want to assign to it, what does the kind of public footprint look like for a technology company that is a purveyor of news and information, a purveyor of personal data, um, you know, a purveyor of, of, of knowledge in the world. So I think these are questions that we need to be asking, that senior leadership of these companies needs to be asking, yes. and that each one of us as individuals needs to ask. So when you saw all these changes, uh, I believe you folks pulled together some uh, legislation. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about the process? Where is the where is the uh, was it sort of a model yeah. piece? Where is it now? What's the status? So we we did uh, going back to 2017. We convened um, company uh, yeah, supporters of ours, other members of civil society and advocacy and uh, academics. We have a group of fellows and other uh, affiliated academics. I will confess that each one of those was groups was in their own room because we didn't think they could actually get along <laughs> with each other. Frankly, and it's still kind of true. Um, and we just said, again, in, in not only under NDA, uh, kind of in an off-the-record way, tell us what you want or what you're worried about, what's your greatest hope and your worst fear if, if there were to be a law. Sure. And we did a lot of research. And obviously, we built upon prior drafts that CDT has written in many, many decades. Um, we looked at the Obama Bill of Rights. We looked at you know, work that was done in the Bush administration and the Clinton administration. You know, There's a long history, frankly, of really good privacy thinking and at senior leadership levels in, in companies of all kinds and in governments. Important. <clears throat> to me is that we're not just talking to technology companies or telecom companies. It is that we are talking to Main Street, to Wall Street, to, you know, small businesses, medium businesses. The theme that really kept coming back to us is not only the how of what does this technology do, but the why. Why are people concerned and why is this technology interfering or invading our lives? Um, And to us, one of the big themes that we've been working on at CDT for a long time really infuses this project, and that is of equity as combating discrimination. We would hope that it was unintentional discrimination, right, kind of algorithmic bias baked in accidentally or or inevitably. Um, But we believe that technology at its best and highest use will create greater equity and and equality, which are two different things, Mm -hmm. um, in society. And so, you know, a a big part of our bill, it really goes two themes, past fair information principles, which are essential. And I think that is a given and not sufficient. And past notice and choice, again, two of the core fair information principles, um, because I do think transparency is essential and, and explaining your technology is essential. But that alone is not enough. I think we are past that conversation in this country and around the world. It's no longer just to say, I'm going to take your data and I'm going to use it for anything I want and that's a good enough notice. <laughs> or I'm going to take your data, I'm going to use it for this and this and this and this, and you can delete it maybe if you want in about 10 years. Like These are not sufficient status quo. These are ideas that are being floated and frankly, I probably floated them 20 years ago. Somebody came to me with a draft of something else and I said, that would have been groundbreaking about 20 years ago. Thank you so much. <laughs> you know. So where I think where we go, you know, again, looking at where the puck is going and not where it is, is People are concerned, and they are right to be concerned ab- about a feeling that judgments are being made about them 
in ways that they can't entirely see un- or understand or even more affect in any way. So the idea – there is a fundamental fair information principle, which is there should be no secret databases. And that was really directed at government secret databases, which I think is a totally good idea to keep with us. There should be no secret databases. And that governments and, frankly, private sector institutions should not be making judgments about people in ways that cannot be understood and based on data that is opaque or unseen to the individual. So, uh, and this gets harder and harder when you get into the worlds of AI and machine learning and private, you know, kind of decision-making, particularly when that private decision-making is used in law enforcement or other contexts, but even when it's used for commercial purposes. If you can't see it and understand it, it's it's even scarier. And I think, frankly, it should be de facto kind of, you know, not suspect, but, but probed. Um, And so our thinking really goes to how to ferret out, and we've got some practical tools on the CDC website called Digital Decisions on how to ferret out unintended bias, but even more, how do we look at data collection and use um, and and the consequences of data? So not just the data, but the decision. And so that's where a little bit of our brief goes to not just notice and choice, but really beyond it into kind of trying to eradicate or to the greatest amount possible minimize unintended discrimination. Where's the status of the legislation? Um, we introduced kind of our draft as a, as a talking point, as kind of a thought piece to members of Congress. There are, like I said, a half a dozen you know, already introduced bills. We are talking to members. I, I, I'm so pleased to say on both sides of the aisle and both houses, um, many are coming from different, different viewpoints. Um, some want to protect and, and, and defend the rights of small and medium businesses and, and not unfairly cement or kind of implant large uh, constructs or large platforms. I, I think that's a really good point. This Our bill, we really honed in on the idea that I am less interested in ideas of creating more privacy bureaucracy in companies. Like, listen, I sat on the top of, you know, several <laughs> privacy bureaucracies in several large companies, and that's great. Um, but these should be laws that the small business owner, the startup, the entrepreneur can understand, oh, hey, it's not fair to collect a whole bunch of data surreptitiously about someone and then give them higher prices. Yeah. You know, like, that's just de facto unfair, right? Or, or hey, I shouldn't discriminate based, you know, based on, and, and these laws are obviously are already on the books in terms of gender and race and other protected classes, but how does how do those play over into digital decisions and, and kind of high-tech con- context that we haven't really fully thought through, perhaps? Um, but even more, I think there's just basic fairness. People kind of can get, and these laws should should hopefully nudge people in the sense of, Privacy doesn't need to be complicated. It doesn't need to be overly jargony. But there's a fundamental dignity and fairness at play here. How is the Center for Democracy and Technology advancing federal privacy laws, protecting digital rights, and addressing key cybersecurity issues? I'll explore these questions and so much more with its president and CEO, Nula O'Connor, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. 
Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center special report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Lula O'Connor, President and CEO of the Center for Democracy and Technology. Let's focus on the government. Uh, what, is, what do you do at CDT to kind of hold at bay some, some would call invasive technologies or that maybe government's setting up? So what are you doing in that area? I think this is a joy to work on, frankly, because I speak with some kind of authority, having been the first chief privacy officer at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, that there's a lot of vaporware, first of all. Yes. We often find ourselves yes. in the position of saying, no, 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 you don't, be, don't need to be afraid of this technology, or no, 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 it doesn't actually do that. I hope we are often the rational voice of do not be afraid and also do not think this is the silver bullet. I was just at a, a convening around ideas of uh, human resources discri- potential discrimination and the use of automated decision-making tools. There have been some stories about big companies that are you know are receiving 70,000 applications for a particular job trying to automate their decision and also ferret out unintended bias. And that what you find is if the data goes, that goes in is of bad quality and if the values that go in are just reinforcing the bias that you already have towards a particular educational background or setting or gender or race or whatever, that is what you're going to get out, right? And so someone you know, wisely said, listen, none of this is the silver bullet. It can help automate what is already good and it can help automate what is already bad. And so we often find ourselves saying, wait a second. You know, let's pause and let's think about what is it you're actually trying to do and does this technology achieve what you're trying to do? That is very much the role I played at the Department of Homeland Security, especially when people are afraid, whether in the days after 9-11, whether after a terrorist attack, whatever. And someone comes in and says, I can fix this for you. You know, I can save you. I can save lives. It is very hard. You know, you, you want to explore every possible option. And that's absolutely understandable and laudable. And also, we have a duty of stewardship to, to not waste tax dollars and not, you know, and not be overly invasive. Um, I, do, I do worry greatly about the totalitarian surveillance state. So we are, I'd say, pretty hard line on government use of new technologies because of the potential for permission creep, for data sharing across different agencies for unrelated purposes. So, you know, one area besides, so we'll move further into the the intersection between the mobile technology advances and healthcare. What are you guys doing in that space? Because there's a lot of risk associated with it. Uh, what are some of those risks? If you can give a high-level view of it, um, what should folks – what are some of the recommendations 
that CDT has come up with in this area. Thank you so much for that. And I would say I'm going to point you to our website where we have a couple of incredible reports funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation okay, yeah. and a, a joint partnership with with even with Fitbit and some mm-hmm. other um, partners to look at. Um, data collection and data use and data ethics in the healthcare space. Um, health is very, very important. And now that I'm managing, you know, several, many, many children's health records, and I can see the need for efficiency, for interoperability, for all the values that we look at in law enforcement and other contexts. And also, there are tremendous risks. There are risks of data sharing. There are risks um, of of unfair decisioning employment based on people's knowledge or inappropriate knowledge, particularly when your employer is your is your healthcare provider, you know, or is is the purveyor of your healthcare um, services, uh, and so we really we do worry about the unintended consequences or potential long term discrimination against people with health conditions, um, or the unintended leakage, you know, or, or breach of, of healthcare data. Um, so I don't necessarily de facto have a concern about mobile or any other particular technology. I do, like with all of our different technology kind of inquiries, worry about hype and 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 folks selling the snake oil of this is going to be you know the thing that's going to uh, to to solve your health issue, whatever it is. Um, I also. I think there's a huge ethics issue. We haven't fully, we've only begun to explore with any kind of data collection online, or particularly when it relates to a human. We, as we learn more and more about facial recognition or other kinds of, of, of social media monitoring, realize that it is possible to infer health conditions. The, the secondary question I have is, what is the duty of care of the company who potentially has that technology or has large data sets. I'm thinking of social media and teenagers, you know, the the, the number Searches of people on, yeah, yeah, particular, you know, platforms. I'm, I should be more careful about not, trying not – I'm really not trying to call out anybody in particular. Well, um, but if you know a 13-year-old is using words on a particular platform that indicate suicidal ideation, do you – have a duty of care, or is it just impossible given the numbers on different platforms? Um, and if so, how do you tell people I, we don't yeah. do that? Yeah. You know, I, I, I will use another example in the real world of a, a, an amusement park that has um, kind of RFID bands. I always said, listen, if they can tell somebody where their child is lost, That's great. you know, they should absolutely they should be sure. There's a benefit that I can buy more stuff with this thing, and I get through lines and get onto my rides faster. And also, are there social benefits that must that should be required if we're going to use these for commercial purposes as well? That's really the larger scale ethical question I have for the companies is how far do we go and how far do we not go because we do not want to be mo- actively monitoring every you know word or utterance or, or picture that, that you know or, that we couldn't you possibly couldn't right. And you so couldn't, you couldn't do it equitably. Right. Exactly. Well, that, well, and that those are actually the content moderation issues that we are exploring at CDT, and so many great academics are exploring. It is impossible to do correctly, yeah. you know, without a high false positive or false negative rate on whatever kind of monitoring you're talking about, and also scale, and also the the social. Um, you know, downsides for someone to be deplatformed or you know de defrocked from whatever their 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 group is, um, or the potential unintended bias. I, I the, the flipping example I always use is you know I have an Irish name and many people with Irish names or Native American names or names of different cultures often get 
treated unfairly in, in different in other contexts because they just can't be recognized because the characters don't match or you know the the, the, the alphabet doesn't have match whatever. Multiply that by tens of thousands or millions of people, and you have a pretty big unfair bias issue on your hands. And then, how do you, how do you correct for that? And so, uh, these are really hard questions. And I actually say that, that the platforms are are grappling with much harder than people realize on the outside. And also, there's still a heck of a lot more work to do. So let's still stay on something hard, and that is uh, your efforts. And I think it was around uh, in light of the. Uh, the uh, elections around cybersecurity issues. What what are you doing in, in that area, um, whether it's election-related or even just outside the elections? Hard but not complicated or complicated but not hard? I'm not sure. I guess hard but not complicated. We want election technology to be secure mm-hmm. and fair and accurate. So this is the goal is not hard. We want elections to be trusted by people in the country that it's happening in and be valid and be um, easy to access for people of all kinds and abilities and shapes and sizes. So um, that's easy to say. It's harder to do. Um, I've also said this: these last few years have been kind of back to basics. Our middle name literally is democracy, right? The Center for Democracy and Technology. We want an educated and informed electorate that is fundamental to a democracy. We want freedom of expression that is fundamental to a thriving democracy. We want you know kind of one person, one vote. We want that vote to be counted and trusted. That is fundamental to a democracy. If these pillars start to crumble. You know, I was with a friend this morning. Literally, is telling me he's just finished the book when when democracy, how democracies die, which is not one I have read yet, and I've been thinking about reading it. And I'm, and he said, I said, well, do we have it? Whatever the it is, and he said, oh yeah, unfortunately, we have all of the it's you know required to to, to kill the democracy. So we are going to be standing on the the the, the, the bank, you know, the 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 banks of the you know the river as, as sure. waving frantically to keep the democracy alive. Um, our de- our election technology work, funded by the Democracy Fund, thank you very much, um, is to educate and inform and and help and enable state election officials across this country um, in doing not only the baseline but bringing up the level and standard of care of cybersecurity protection around election technologies of all kinds, and that includes not only the voting machines, which Joe Lorenzo Hall, our chief technologist, um, hacked for uh, his senior thesis in, in graduate school, and, and we wow. still are involved in the thing called Voting Village, where we uh, a bunch of hackers get in a room and try to hack. Into you know on offline election technology you know the ones ones we've bought and that are no longer actually happening you know in, in live elections right now um, and it just shows again this is where our, our security is being protected by inefficiency because lots of different states use different machines so there's no one you know mach- system you can all hack into um, and helping you know, underfunded, under-resourced, really talented state election officials uh, get a little further along the line of securing not only, again, the actual frontline voting technology, but their databases, their systems. Their, you know, there's a lot of rich information about all of us in these voting systems. Listen, the states differ wildly, as we know, right? There are big ones and small ones. And and, and it's not always true that, you know, the, the small ones are, are not as advanced in at, at, at the slightest bit. It's just there are different levels of, um, of knowledge of systems and, and and also helping companies innovate and think about more competition. Our, we have a new program we haven't even talked about yet called separately called Competition Data and Power, which I think is I would love to talk about because there's the meme about breaking up companies. I think is overplayed. Um, but our competition leader has said to our voting technology people. 
You do realize there are only two major voting machine manufacturers in the United States. That is not a lot of competition. I'm sorry, Avery, if I'm I'm revealing what your next project's <laughs> going to be on. Um, Avery Gardner has just joined us. She's a longtime um, government and then private sector and civil society uh, leader and expert in competition um, in the United States and elsewhere. And it's a joy to watch her work because she is as excited and passionate about her work and competition as I am on human rights and privacy. And we are really exploring what this call for breakups means and looks like and really does. And I think there is a difference between anti-competitive behavior and size. Mm -hmm. Both of those are important. They are not the same. I've also, my flippant answer when people say break it all up is, listen, I have been for a long time a single working parent with a very busy family and a very busy job. I don't need my internet companies to work less efficiently. I need them to work more efficiently. I need those packages on my front doorstep. I need my milk in my fridge, I need whatever it is I'm getting, I don't think it's necessarily in the consumer interest to have greater inefficiency. We are not returning to a day when there was a spouse at home who could walk down to the corner store and buy the milk and make the dinner and whatever. We need our dinners delivered. We need our dry groceries delivered. We need our you know, uh, dry cleaning delivered. If there is, is, again, if there's anti-competitive behavior that is not in the best interest of the individual citizen, we certainly want to explore that. Um, if there are other markers of power, and I well, that's why we named this program Competition Data and Power. I'm kind of giving away what I think the, the marker of, of power is in a digital world. It's the personal data. And so I do think there are other ways to constrain if the perception and the reality is that there is an imbalance of power between the institution and the individual. And the thing that the institution is holding over the individual's head is their data – then maybe the right way to do is not to say, we're going to make you smaller, but we're going to constrain your use and transfer and utility and analysis of the data about me in ways that are more respectful of me. So I'm giving away a little bit where I think, you know, I think the answer is going, but I don't also know, which I think is the fun part of this job is we get to think about these things and we we don't necessarily always know what the right answer is when we start. So looking ahead, Nula, to what extent must we rethink the old paradigms governing a data-driven world and returning the power back to the individual. I'm so glad you asked that. That is the fundamental work we're trying to explore and do and get right for not only the United States, but really for the global internet uh, economy and, and society. I really do think we have changed the paradigm about what matters to people. I don't think we have changed the paradigm about fundamental values of doing business or the relationship of government to person. When I say what matters, I mean people have a digital identity now that is, I wouldn't say quite separate and apart from, but it, it matters to them, the, the bits and bytes that they leave, the, the, the breadcrumbs of the, the digital trail that they leave behind. It matters to individuals, and it also matters very deeply to companies and governments because they want to know you. That is a new structure. That is a new asset. That is a new thing of value that we have not necessarily adequately considered under our law in the past. And what I mean by that is looking at antitrust and looking at competition and looking at power, we have valued infrastructure and industry and and warehouses and widgets and, and, and things that we can see in the world. I think there's been a little bit of a collision, and that's probably a lot of the angst we're seeing from the competition and antitrust bar is, oh, wait, this digital stuff, this frivolous you know, social media stuff that we've all been poo-pooing now for the last 20 years has actual value and matters to people and people take it seriously. Yes, and 
It also matters to the individuals whose data it is. So my Facebook profile, I think of as almost a small town newspaper at this point because I have several thousand friends from college, from graduate school, from all my different jobs. But it matters to me, and I mean, it, meaning it's a thing of value. Um, it matters to the company. It's a thing of value as an advertising-based model. And and it matters in terms of you know a, a freedom of association and agility of movement and that sort of thing. I think that traditional structures of law and, and frankly, case law and, and legislation have, have undervalued the importance and the power of data in past iterations. That said, I, again, I think not that, not that it's easy. It's clear and simple. It's hard to do a, you know, a, a, a comprehensive privacy law that does not chill and stifle innovation and also respects individual autonomy and dignity and also respects freedom of expression for the individual and the company. So this is these are going to be hard conversations we're going to have in the next several years. At the end of the day, though, I don't think doing business has changed all that much in the, in the simple sense of, I think of the small town shop owner who wanted to know their customers so they knew what kind of goods to stock at a certain store or what time of the week people bought, you know, flour versus sugar or whatever, you know, whatever I'm thinking of the Wild West. But this is about knowing your customer. That's old time, you know, good commerce. I don't have any problem with being known. And I've said this actually to retailers, online and offline retailers, a million times. Customers do want to be known as long as they feel like they're being respected. Mm-hmm. And these are old-time fundamental values of human dignity and respect. What I don't want it is for you to know me and then to discriminate against me and, again, charge me higher prices or get, put me in a longer line or whatever, at least in a way that's opaque to me and that I don't understand what the values and the rules are and understand what the deal is. Okay, I'll wait in a longer line if it means I'm going to pay a penny less for this, you know, whatever. But but I want to be the one to make that decision. And I want to know what the rules are and that they're fair for everybody. Um, so I think that, yes, the paradigm has shifted in terms of the power of data and the, the way we do business online and the speed. I will say I think speed and scale are different than they used to be, and we all just need to wrap our heads around that and go. Um, but I don't think the fundamental values of how we should treat each other with respect have changed one bit. So how can folks learn more about CDT? Um, how can they support your work? Thank you so much. We are www.cdt.org. We are a 501c3 nonprofit philanthropic organization. We are fueled by your individual donations, by your good wishes, your support. You can sign up for our free newsletter at the website and follow our work online on Twitter at at SendemTech, C-E-N-D-E-M-T-E-C-H, um, on Instagram, on LinkedIn. Um, we, we welcome your support and your feedback. Great. Wonderful. Thank you for joining Thank me today. Thank you so much. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Nula O'Connor, President and CEO of the Center for Democracy and Technology. Be sure to join me next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour, be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. What are complex problems? How can we tackle complexity? How does engineering serendipity help address complexity? What can we do to translate opportunity into action? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with David Benjamin, co-author of Cracking Complexity, the breakthrough formula for solving just about anything fast. That's next week on the Business of Government Hour. 